Guys, welcome. Welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Nick. If I haven't met you, I'm the lead pastor here. Be bringing God's word to us momentarily. Um, but happy, happy three day weekend. Yeah, you guys feeling excited about that? Labor Day? Yeah? Okay, here's a secret for you. Um, I always get Mondays off. <laughs> now, I pay for it because my weekends aren't off, but I do always get Mondays off. And uh, what's nice about that is I get it when no one else does. So uh, the beach is ours on Monday, right? Uh, kind of. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Anyways, hope you have uh, having a good weekend so far. Um, we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 16. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. And we've got some lovely uh, gentlemen who will uh, bring one to you. If you don't own a Bible, um, really what we're about as a church here is... Uh, spreading the word of God. So feel free to keep that uh, Bible. That's our gift to you. Or if you know someone you'd want to give it to, that's fine as well. Uh, they make good stocking stuffers. Christmas is coming up. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. It actually kind of is, isn't it? It's kind of creepy. I realized the other day it's almost Halloween. Wow. Anyways, uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, we're, what we'll be reading here. I'll give you a moment to get there, read it, and we will uh, dive in. All right, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish and besides all this between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us and he said then I beg you father to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Would you pray with me as we begin? Uh, It's clear to everyone in this room, probably, that what we are about to look at this morning, God, is quite serious. The Bible is a weighty book. Your words um, have a gravity to them, a significance to them. We don't play games with the scriptures. We come and put ourselves under them and let you tell us how reality works and what we need to do about it. So God, I know that there are some heavy truths in this parable, but there are also some life-giving, 
liberating, weight-lifting truths. And I pray you'd help us to come out on the latter side of it. I pray you'd help us this morning to see Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior that He is. The one who drank the cup of the Father's wrath on our behalf. So that we could sit and eat and drink with Him around the banquet table of heaven. I thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that now, even in, in this place, you would open eyes, you would open hearts, you would save, you would strengthen, you'd sustain. And you'd do all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me take a, a drink of water here, and I recommend that you might do the same. It's about to get real. Um, I say that, and actually... Uh, one of the things I wanted to let you know uh, up front here is that I'm actually planning to spend a whole week next week on um, the idea of hell as it's put forward in this text. Uh, I recognize that that concept for us is difficult. It's hard. I don't think anybody necessarily loves it. Uh, People probably don't like to reflect about it or upon it, but here it is. And I wanted to try to help us a little bit with that by devoting a whole Sunday to it uh, next week. Um, So, Come prepared to be encouraged. Actually, I do think I do think that you will find there is great encouragement there. In fact, one of the things you realize as you walk with God, as you as you read the scriptures long enough, you realize that uh, the deeper you go into uh, your understanding of man's depravity, your understanding of God's holiness, your understanding of of the wrath that we deserve, that the higher your appreciation for the all sufficient work of Jesus on the cross, and therefore actually the higher the the the, the, the greater the joy that you have in him um so tomorrow we'll or next week we'll we'll be working for your joy as we discuss uh the notion of hell in more detail but this week what i wanted to do is actually take a little bit of a different approach than what i normally do uh with the scriptures a lot of times i'll just kind of go verse by verse and make my way through still gonna definitely be grounding my thoughts in the text here this morning but i'm going to do it but by simply just making three observations for us and kind of reflecting on these things with you kind of grab a few truths here and there from this and bring them out for us to consider um before i get to those three observations and we kind of dive in i feel like i need to catch us up to speed with where we've been in chapter 16 only because th- there's a context to this parable this parable that's often referred to as uh, the rich man and lazarus um and i need us to i want us to see what's come before so we get what's happening here uh you may recall if you were with us uh that we've looked at chapter 16 now for a few weeks and in verses 1 through 9 there was actually another parable that jesus gave us there a parable often referred to as the shrewd manager and the point while that parable is difficult the essential point i think uh, at least i made the case that this was the essential point in that parable is this uh in view of eternity and the coming judgment, use your money and possessions now in such a way that you will be prepared then. That's the essential idea is, listen, if eternity is real, if this life is not all that there is, but in fact, uh, your eternal destiny hinges on how you handle things here and now, well then, handle your money, handle your stuff, handle your life in such a way now that you'll be prepared then. 
That's what a shrewd manager would do. That's what a shrewd person would do. That's what anyone wise would do. And yet people often live as if this place is all that there is, as if this moment is all that there is. And we saw that as Jesus talked about these sorts of things to his disciples, there was another group called the Pharisees listening in. Pharisees were the religious people in Jesus' day who were uh, deeply ingrained in the society there and involved in the law and upkeeping everything uh, that they found in it. But what we find is that as they hear Jesus talk about, listen, if you're going to prepare yourself for the coming kingdom, if you're going to prepare yourself for eternity, it means not hoarding up stuff, amassing stuff for yourself here and now, but actually releasing it in love for God and others in the advance of his kingdom. When they hear that, you would think they'd be giving a hearty hurrah, but instead we read, they grumble. They ridicule Jesus. Verse 14, this is what we read in particular. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. Their hearts were set not on God, but on his stuff. And though they were busy in the church, uh, there was not an affection for him. They were doing it for other reasons. They loved money. And so when Jesus comes and puts his finger on that love and says, that's got to go. If eternity is going to go right for you, they will not have it. Right? They will not have it. Now, all of that... Uh, really sets us up then uh, for the parable we're looking at this morning because the discussion after those uh, after that initial parable there verses one through eight nine um, the discussion continues between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees now and he goes on to share the parable that is our text uh, really I think with them in mind. So let's uh, now begin verses 19 through 30. We'll kind of look at some of those uh, verses. I'll bring out three observations for us. Let's, let's dive in. First observation. We must beware the pitfall of present tense thinking. So the first thing I'm catching from this parable that Jesus is, is, is sharing with us, with the Pharisees and his disciples here, is that we must beware the pitfall of present tense thinking. Now, I recognize at first that's a mouthful, perhaps, and you have no idea what I'm really talking about. Wasn't there a simpler way of saying it? Probably there was. But essentially what I'm getting at is this. In our parable for this morning, it seems to me that the big issue... Uh, uh, comes to the fore when we see these two guys and kind of what they were living for. And you've got one guy who all kind of stuff kind of goes wrong for him, and he's got this present tense thinking, this present tense lifestyle that I'm talking about, where everything is, is, is rooted in the here and now. And as we'll see, it doesn't end well for him. But I want you to see these two men. You've got one man, present tense. Here and now, it's awesome. You've got another man, perhaps we would infer from the text, living for the future tense. Setting his hope on God. Hoping that someday things will go better for him. Uh, and I want to look at these two men side by side and kind of draw some of this out for us. If you notice, the, the rich man's opulence there in verse 19 is described in vivid detail, and I want to bring that out. Look at it again. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, one thing to say here, just so we're aware, being clothed in purple, all right? This was more than just kind of his fashion sense, like my little girl, her favorite color is purple. Like this isn't his favorite color necessarily, but purple, uh, as it still is uh, today in many ways, back then especially was the color of royalty, right? 
It was the color that only the rich, the wealthy, the royal could get a hold of because it was made with this very rare dye that you'd actually get from the secretions of like a mollusk from the sea. Now, it sounds gross. A sea snail is kind of producing this color that then becomes my clothes. But for them... Because of the rarity, because it costs so much to get a hold of it, of course, that's what we want to grab a hold of. And so this guy uh, wants the purple cloth. He's living, he's clothing himself in it. And what I, what I thought about uh, as I considered this is certainly a red, a green, a white, uh, a tan cloth would have done uh, just the same in terms of covering, keeping warm, Right? This is not an issue of necessity for this brother. Uh, this is not that he needs to have it, but that he wants to have it. It's not that he must have the purple cloth. It's that he can have the purple cloth. And you can't. It's an upper crust sort of a thing. And, and, and honestly, sometimes we have to look at the way we handle our own modern luxuries, right? And think about this. Again, it, it, are the things in my life, are they, are they necessities? Do I have them because I need them? Or do I kind of pad my life with them because they add to my sense of identity? They add to my ego. Like, I could just drive a normal car, but driving a Tesla makes me feel a whole lot better than everyone else on the road. I'm not, I'm not dogging anybody. Forgive me. I'm not dogging anybody if you got a Tesla. But I'm just saying we've got to check our hearts on this. Right? We've got to check our hearts. We like the purple cloth because it sets us apart from everyone else. Well, that's the sort of lifestyle that this man is living here. And um, then the description goes on, and we're told in the latter part of verse 19 there that he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, one thing I want to make plain, God is not against a good party, okay? In fact, there are times in the Old Testament where he, he literally says, hey, on this day in the calendar, this day in the calendar, this time of year, this occasion, I want you guys to party it up. I want you guys to feast. I want you to celebrate. God is not against a good party. But what you notice he's going to do is he's always going to kind of bind it to certain occasions, certain kind of seasons, certain moments in time. He's never going to let it become a lifestyle on this side of heaven. But that's precisely what this guy is doing. He feasted sumptuously every day. It was his life, just sitting there in his purple gown or whatever, you know, with well, well, people put like, you know, grapes in his mouth and fanned him with palm fronds. This was his every day. Now, I should say here as well that I think this sort of present tense mentality is really a feature of our modern age in particular. Now, perhaps it's, I guess you could say it's the feature of every age because it's something lodged in the human heart that we just look at what's around us here and now, the present moment, and we maximize it. It seems like everything to us. Uh, but one of the ways that we can uh, see this at work in our culture and in our own hearts is just by simply considering the idea of, 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 of patience, right? How we can't seem to wait for anything. I just saw a... Um, I was watching a show the other night, and uh, an ad came on. It had this old Queen song I'd forgotten about that I actually liked when I was a kid that sums it up quite well. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. 
That's, that's the idea. That's the anthem that our culture, the fallen human heart, kind of rallies around. I want it all, and I want it now. Present tense, baby. Don't make me wait. Now, I, it seems like a, a regular occurrence now where i got to at least bring up the story of my kids for a moment. Forgive me, this is my life, so I'm just seeing it all the time. Let me just tell you what it's like to teach a little child Patience, right? <laughs> so I got a two-year-old boy right now, and patience is the is the major lesson that we are working on. Because if you're a kid, uh, you and I ask you to be patient, or I ask you to wait, to stop present tense for a moment, hold off for something coming in the future. Uh, I might as well be asking the kid to grab a a, 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 a a screwdriver and jab it into his eye, right? It feels like absolute torture for him to sit there and have to wait. So one of the things I've been trying to do with him is, okay, Matt, I know you want your water bottle. You just told me like 10 times while I was, you know, putting away the dishes. I know you want your water bottle. So let me show you. Daddy's with you. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. I'm with you. I love you. Now let's, let's count to 10 together and then I'll go get it, right? Okay, Daddy. Okay, Daddy. I'm with you. One... Two, three. Daddy, I want my water bottle. <laughs> Daddy, get my water bottle. Well, at least we got to three that time. I'll go get it. All right, good. We're getting somewhere, right? But this is the sort of thing that is so hard for us even as adults to learn. That everything is about the here and now. And it, it, just to give you an example of this, you just kind of have to watch the trajectory of our technology. Right, We're willing to shell out more and more money to try to make advancements so that hopefully we can get everything faster and faster and faster. I don't know if you remember the days when uh, we had dial-up internet and MS-DOS and all these things. Back then, that was cutting edge, right? Nowadays, you try to sit somebody who's used to this thing uh, on one of those computers and, and, and they'll go nuts. I couldn't, I, I couldn't possibly put up with that. Because our technology, I mean, it's just simply uh, responding to this impulse, this drive in the human heart for, for the here and now, everything immediate. I don't want to wait. I was thinking, man, I bet you, I mean, they're probably uh, about to kind of, you know, making a way for like little chips to kind of be put in our brain. So instead of even typing or anything, we just think and it happens. And then I looked it up. I did. I thought, like, what if they are doing this? And of course, you know, there's like a, there's like an announcement from Elon Musk or something about his company that's going to put a chip in your brain so that you just think and it manifests on your computer or whatever. But that's the sort of thing that we have here. I want it all and I want it now. Now, that's the rich man. That's the present tense thinking, present tense lifestyle. There's another man in our parable, isn't there? And his present tense is not going so well. Uh, His destitution in many ways is described by Jesus here with just as much vividness as uh, was the opulence of the rich man. It's a heartbreaking sight, really. Look at verses 20 to 21 with me. And at his, the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the picture, I mean, Jesus does not let us escape just how tragic this man has it. The picture is horrible. He is laying in the gutter, 
just longing. He can kind of see, you know, up through this guy's palace or whatever. He can see through the window. He can see the feast going on. He can hear the parties. He's just saying, just bring me the crumbs that fall from that table and I'd be fine. Just longing for that, we're told. But he gets none of it. And we need to be clear on yet another detail here that's important and we might miss in our modern context. Dogs here, you see these dogs that come up and lick his sores. They're not these cute little cuddly companions that you and I think of. Like, oh, that's nice. Jesus, you know, like, like God sent Jesus an angel in Gethsemane to help him out. Like God sent this brother dogs to help him out. No, that's not what this is. This is not like a, one of those emotional support animals. These are animals that would scavenge and kind of roam the streets. They're not bringing comfort here. They're actually coming to kind of nibble on him. These licks are not licks of affection. They're actually kind of like moving in to kind of, is he still alive? Can we gnaw on that bone? That's the idea. He's just lying there. The crazy thing is, is he's longing for the food that the dogs would get. And if you remember that, that, that woman who says in Matthew 15, 27, Man, even the dogs get the scraps from the master's table. This man is longing for those scraps, the food of dogs, but he's in fact becoming the food of dogs. That's the tragedy. That's the, that, that's the breakdown in this man's present tense. It's not going well. It's a picture of complete and total abandonment. No one is caring for this man. He is all alone, it would seem. And of course, the tragic irony in all of this is that he's laid at the rich man's gate. That this rich man, no doubt, when he's going out to market to buy more purple cloth or more food for his feasts or do his business and make his millions, has to pass right by this brother down on the ground with nothing. And it would seem as if, obviously, he gives him nothing. He felt the weight of, oh, I can't. If I open my hand, if I open my heart to this man, well, that might affect my lifestyle. I'm not willing to give, listen, I'm not willing to feed six days a week and on the seventh feed this man. No, it's seven days a week for me. So I'm sorry. Passing right on by. Passing right on by. Now, we need to pause at this point. Because if the present tense is all that there is, if the here and now is everything, well, then I think we would say, thus far in the parable, the rich man wins. The rich man is the wiser. I mean, why would you get, if it's all about the here and now and amassing what you can here and now, securing yourself here and now, the rich man is the wiser, the poor man lost. But all of a sudden, in verse 22 of our text, the future tense breaks in. And as it does, everything changes. Look at verses 22 and 23 now. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, there's a lot here, and we'll unpack some of it this time, some of it next time. But the first thing that's got to strike us and struck me is, is just the sheer kind of matter-of-factness of, 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 the, of their deaths. Like, Jesus just goes on to say, poor man died, rich man died. They just die. 
There's this sort of matter of fact nature to the reality of death. Jesus almost just says it in this almost unfeeling sort of way. And I think it's on purpose. It's to say there is nothing that your money or anything can do about death. It is a reality. It is, as the old poet James Shirley wrote, the great leveler. You're not going to escape it. It is here. Let me read you a few lines from this guy's poem. He writes this, The glories of our blood and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against fate. I love this line. Death lays his icy hand on kings. Scepter and crown must tumble down and in the dust be equal made with the poor crooked scythe and spade. That's old language for you. Here's essentially what he's saying. Don't matter if you're a king. Don't matter if you're a king. At the end of the day, you may as well have been with the common poor laborer working the dirt with scythe and spade. Your scepter and your crown will amount to nothing in the end. Death, the leveler, brings you down to size. Now, here is why I say there is a pitfall with present tense thinking. We um, get so caught up with the here and now, with how stuff is going around us immediately, that we lose sight of the larger timeline. We lose sight of the fact that you and I actually are eternal beings. I mean, just step back and think about that for a moment. We're not, we're not like God with no beginning or end, but He does say that we, though we had a beginning now, will not have an end. Because there, when He created us, He didn't just give us body, He gave us soul. He breathed into us. Being made in His image involves not just I'm an animal who walks around and fills my belly, but I have a soul and I will move on from here into eternity. When you let that timeline uh, uh, come in, when you let the future tense break in, it changes things. At least it ought to. At least it ought to. We are eternal beings who will pass on from here into forever, and yet we can still fall into this pitfall of present tense thinking like it's all about the here and now. Let's show you how this works out. How the future tense rearranges things. Because here's what we learn as we look again at uh, those verses I read. Uh, Death is not just uh, the leveler. It's not just bringing every man down to the same size. It, in a sense, does that. But what we find also is that in death, or perhaps after death, uh, we are also put in our proper place. It's not like we're just all brought down to the same level. It's now God is actually, because he is righteous and just and holy, going to make right all that's been wrong. He's going to put things back in order. Put people in their proper place. So again, in this case, the merciless one is shown no mercy. He made his life on the back of others. And we'll perhaps see next week, he's still trying to do that. Did you catch how he's still ordering Lazarus around? Like, tell him to bring me water. Tell him to go to my... Just life is all about me. Just made his life on the back of others. No mercy, no openness, no hope in God. All here. There's no mercy shown to him. But the poor, neglected man, on the other hand... 
Uh, we infer again from this text, clearly must have had his hope on God, and God does not, or hope set on God, and God does not disappoint him in the end. We're told that though this man, upon his death, didn't have, it would seem, a proper burial, we're not told he was buried. <laughs> he just rotted there in the street with no one to grief. But even though he didn't have a proper burial like the rich man and all this, God was there. In, in particular, the angels were there and were told that they carried him. They carried him essentially to what we would understand as paradise. God's presence. Now, here it's described as Abraham's side, and I appreciate the English language for doing that. Some of you may know what it actually says in the Greek, and it's not side. It actually is chest, or in the good old King James, it thinks bosom. All right, you've heard this, right? Abraham's bosom. Now, I've, I wanted to actually address this because I struggled with this for a while. I was like, Listen, heaven doesn't sound like heaven to me if I'm being carried up and set on an old man's chest to rest. Can can I just be up front? Like, that doesn't sound like... You know, we're trying to figure out what is heaven like, okay? What is it like? And I'm I'm thinking, I'd probably rather go with the rich man at this point. If I could be up there on Abraham's bosom, that doesn't sound good to me. It sounds like an eternity of awkwardness. Well, I, I, did, I, I looked into it. I'm like, all right, let's resolve the issue here because I'm too mature to handle that phrase. Let's resolve this. And it's actually amazing. It's actually amazing, you guys. What's being communicated here is amazing. Um, I came to understand that what's being insinuated here is this idea, not that we are snuggling up with Abraham, but that we are, in fact, sitting with him at, at table, sitting with him. In fact, even in the seat of honor, near father. This guy's right there next to, to um, father Abraham. This is the idea that we uh, see in John thirteen twenty three that uses the same word, properly translated, chest or bosom, that in our text is going to be side. This is John thirteen twenty three talking about the Last Supper, uh, and we're told this, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And what we realize is that around the table, they would lean in such a way that whoever they were sitting next to, they'd be kind of near the person's chest, their head would be. And so what this starts to show us is actually this amazing reversal, this amazing reality, where the idea here is not uh, that this brother is, is, is kind of snuggling with Abraham, but it's that he's no longer in the gutter longing for food underneath the table to be kind of, you know, pushed to him like a dog. But instead, he's been carried, he's been put in his proper place, we could say, after death now, there in the seat of honor at the banquet table in the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea. What we see here is what Jesus talks about in Matthew eight eleven. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea. This brother was empty. He was abandoned, he had nothing, and then all of a sudden he's around the table with Abraham and God himself. Being in a sense honored, being filled, being cared for. In, in, in our New Testament understanding of it, we may go with the book of Revelation where it talks about us sitting on the Father's lap, wiping away every tear, caring for us in an intimate way, That's what's happening. There's your feast. And that will be a feast that goes on every day. 
So, returning to some of what I said in the introduction, what we learn here is that the whole matter of your future and eternity hinges on where you stand with God and Jesus here and now, and in particular, how your relationship with Him causes you to handle your stuff. That's the bottom line. Now, let me read to you just a few commentators who kind of bring together the parable of the shrewd manager and this parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus and kind of sum it up for us. I want you to hear this, and then I'll move on. Don't worry. Observation number one is by far the longest. One commentator writes this. The dishonest steward and the rich man and Lazarus both concern the life of the world to come. And they both teach that our destiny in that world depends on what we do with the here and now. It is a challenge to the far-sighted use of the things of this world. The things that we shall not be able to take with us, but which nonetheless constitute the raw material out of which our inner character is built. Another commentator puts the matter like this. The shrewd manager used wealth to gain eternal friendships. Back up in verse 9. But the rich man fails to use his wealth to help a poor man at his gate and thus has no eternal friend to advocate for him. You catch that? The whole message of the shrewd manager was, man, use your money in such a way that you are preparing for that day. And he talks about it in terms of friendship. Well, here we got the rich man calling out for a friend and there's crickets coming from the, there ain't no friend for this brother because it was all about him. I love what John Piper says, commenting on verse 25, and this is where I'll leave it. Uh, If you use your money in this life to pad yourself with luxuries and are indifferent to the advancement of the gospel and the meeting of needs, then earth will be the length of your heaven and eternity will be the length of your hell. But if on earth you use your money not to increase your luxuries, but to do works of love and advance the kingdom of heaven, then no matter how many sores are on your body, earth will be the extent of your hell and eternity will be the extent of your heaven. He puts it so well. The bottom line is this. We've got to beware of the pitfall of present tense thinking. Let the future tense break in and let that influence the way you handle your stuff. Because you're not going to take it with you. And it will not be there for you in the end. But God will. Now, observation number two then. Uh, let me check the time, make sure we're going to be okay. Yeah, we'll be all right. Uh, we must not read God's countenance off of our earthly circumstances. Let me say that again. Observation number two. We must not read God's countenance off of our earthly circumstances. Again, let me make sure you're clear on what I mean by that. Do you guys know what a countenance even is? It's a facial expression, right? Like, so you could either be, mm, and then you see that, you know, okay, that person's not very happy right now, either that or they're eating a lemon. And you see, ah, oh, that person's very happy right now. This is good. So I happen to have one of those expressive faces. It gets me into a lot of trouble sometimes. You can tell what I'm feeling by what's on my face. What I'm saying here is, Sometimes as Christians, we are prone to read God's countenance. So in other words, what is he feeling about me off of our earthly circumstances? If the earthly circumstances are going well, God is for me. Woo! He loves me. This is so good. If the earthly circumstances are going bad, he's against me. I can see your frown up there. What's your problem? What did I do? Right? You been there? You been there? I see this at work in my own heart all the time. I'll give you a positive example, though I could give you countless negative ones. 
I was at Costco. And I kid you not, this is where the sermon illustration came, or this is where the point even came into my mind. I was at Costco with the kids this last week, doing some shopping. Megan gives me a big list. I try my best. It's kind of fun. We get churros, you know, we're hot dogs. And I'm going. Uh, we never have time to like, oh, what's actually on sale coupon-wise? Costco's already a good deal. But I'm going, and I'm checking off things on the list. And I kid you not, I went through a string of maybe five, six, seven, where everything I got, everything I went to get was on sale. Everything was like, $4 off toothpaste? We needed that. Floss? Oh, my goodness, $5 off that? You know, oh, what, the chicken over here? Okay, $3 off of that? And here's what came in my heart. Here's, here's the sort of thing that I was feeling. God loves me. I mean, God is for me. Wow, God, thank you. You are just parting the Costco Red Sea waters, and I am walking through just skipping all around on dry ground, right? And this is really how we think, though. This is how it works. I mean, because I've been on the opposite side when something as silly as a couple red lights in a row makes me go, What? You know I'm late. I'm always late, but that's another story. There is the other side to it, though, right? It's nice, it's fun, when things feel good. It seems like God is for us and we love it. Earthly circumstances going well. Man, it's counting, he's smiling. What a blessing. But then we have those other days, right? Where it feels like everything we're hoping for, everything we're doing is coming in nothing. It feels actually like God is not just, uh, not just not parting the waters. It feels like he's standing in our way. Like he's the one like put, laying the bricks and building the wall between us and the thing we're hoping. Have you got any of those stuff? i got some of that right now, but I won't go into it. <laughs> some of you hear me say that and say, um, have I had days like that? Nick? Try weeks, try months, try years, try. That feels like the story of my life. Like, I just want to look up at the heavens and go, Why do you hate me? Why did you bring me onto this earth just to hurt me? Have you said that in the dark night of your soul? I've screamed that in a car on the way home from meetings or hard times. We feel it, right? We feel like, man, off of these circumstances, if I were to guess what you're feeling about me, I would say you're against me. I bring this up because we're trying to read, or if we're trying to read, God's countenance towards these two men in our parable off of their earthly circumstances. I mean, we're going to get it so wrong. You catch that? If we're going, how does God feel about these two people? We are going to say, well, the rich man surely did something right, and God is smiling on him. But this poor man in the gutter, no doubt, man, he must have upset the Lord God Almighty because providence is coming against him something fierce, right? If Job's friends were to walk up on the scene, they'd be asking, man, what did the rich man do to get on God's good side so that we can do that? My goodness, what did this guy do to deserve that? Or if if Jesus' disciples were to roll up on this scene here in our parable, just like they did with the man who was born blind, they'd probably say something like this, like they did in John 9, 2. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? In other words, we see that this man was born blind. Clearly, there's some serious sin involved, and God is punishing. 
off of these earthly circumstances, I can read the countenance of God. So the logic goes, but our parable and the scriptures elsewhere militate against such a black and white hermeneutic or interpretation. No way. You do that in our parable, you get the thing completely backwards. And so it ought to give us reason to pause. And what we realize when we look at the scriptures is that sometimes, to be sure, God's wrath is expressed as him bringing upon a person earthly punishment. Sometimes that's true. But other times, like in Romans 1, it talks about his wrath. It talks about his punishment being giving people over to the things that they want. Did you catch that? Like everything's going well. So their pride and their ego is just getting worse. They're turning more monstrous. They're being prepared for hell. You catch that? Sometimes, my goodness, the worst thing that could be happening for you is for everything to be going well. While you're on the way to hell. That's not a sign of God's favor. That's a sign of God's abandoning you. Sometimes. So it's not that simple. And coming at it from the other side. Sometimes to be sure. God's favor is expressed in his bringing material and circumstantial blessing upon you. For your faithfulness. That's true. I believe that. I see that. But. Other times, as in, say, just staying in with Romans 5, uh, or with the book of Romans, as in Romans 5, we see that other times there is suffering, there is stuff that comes, because he's actually building character in you. He's actually pressing you more towards himself, conforming you more in his image. Sometimes the hardships come not as an expression of divine wrath or anger, but actually as an expression of fatherly care and concern. Because if he doesn't get in the mix and press you towards him and and disattach your, your heart from these earthly idols and things, you will not run to him. You will not trust in him. And if he's got the long game in view, what is more loving to give you your best life now on your way to hell or to give you hardship here that keeps you pressing in towards him until you get to glory? One of the places I love because it just marries this gray Awkward mixture of, of the reality that we live in together, both sides. Sometimes his, his favor is a blessing, sometimes his favor is, is hard. <laughs> uh, one of the places I love to go for this is Hebrews 11. The whole, the whole chapter is about people that God was pleased with, that he's commending, that he's saying, yes, these guys had faith, they were awesome. But you get to the end and the author's like, dang, I'm running out of time. Let me quickly sum up things. And this is what he says in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me if I told of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, here's the good stuff. Oh, this is good. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight women received back their dead by resurrection and you go yes and amen I can read off of those earthly circumstances God's favor God is for them Woo! expect that in my life but then you keep reading and you go oh my goodness it's not this clear is it 
author of Hebrews doesn't stutter. I mean, this is the great line of champions in the faith that God was pleased with. And it goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. They were laying. They were laying in the gutter outside the rich man's gate, living in holes. He comes out of this and he says, all of them, all of these people were commended by God through their faith. Verse 39. Commended. You read that, you go, first half, God's pleased with. Second half, whoa, God was, I was a little frustrated with them, but they made it. Commended. Not frowning, but glowing with affection. Even in the most horrible earthly circumstances. So you see, it has never been a fail-safe endeavor to try to read off of your circumstances how God is feeling about you. That's not the sort of process that the scriptures would condone instead. The scriptures say, forget looking at how you're faring in the here and now, and rather look at where you stand in relationship to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you can know. Keeping in line with where I was at in Romans, Romans 8, 31 through 39. This is what we read. I'm just going to read it. I don't have time to bring out anything that's here. Someday we may do a whole sermon series on, the ch- on chapter 8 alone. But here's what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, here's the looking to the cross now. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if he put his son, his most beloved treasure on the cross for you, he is not now about to kind of go back on the deal because of a few earthly circumstances and bring some stuff in because you did a few sins. If he was willing to give it all up for you when you were an enemy, you better believe he is for you now. Whatever may come your way. But he continues. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Don't think <laughs> that, this, that this hardship means that God is against you. If God has declared he is for you at the cross, taken your sin, paid it, done away with it, he is for you here today. If you're in him. Who is that? Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, here it is, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He just lays it all out. He says, what is it that's going on in your life right now? What could possibly go wrong? And he says, you want me to tell you something? 
even that's not going to separate you from the love of Christ. Even that doesn't mean that he's now frowning upon you. He is fully and forever for you. Put his son on the cross for your sin. Rose him up for your justification. Lives to make intercession for you in his interceding right now. In the good stuff and in the hard stuff. Keeping you faithful to glory. If you are in Christ, then it can be said to you what William Cowper put so eloquently in his old hymn. I love this hymn. I may try to learn this at some point so I can play it. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, all the circumstances seem rough, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Your circumstances are frowning. Behind them, God is smiling. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means in Jesus. He is fully and forever for you. Don't get caught up in the mix of he's for me and against me. He's for me and against me. He is playing the long game with your life. He is for you. Now, observation number three. And this one will be the quickest of all. Even when all the world has forgotten you, God still knows your name. This is one of the sweetest things. I can't. I couldn't wait to get to this. Even when all the world has forgotten you, God still knows your name. Um, this third observation is closely related in many ways to the second. Uh, but let me at least say this: commentators have long pointed out the glaring oddity um, in this parable that uh, we actually know the poor man's name. In all of the other parables that Jesus shares throughout the Gospels, I want you to think about it. We are never, we are not once told the characters' names. And there are some compelling, amazing characters. We don't know the name of the prodigal son. We just call him the prodigal son. We don't know the name of the good Samaritan. We just call him the good Samaritan. We don't have a name. We don't know the name of that awesome guy, I think I talked about last week, who sold all that he had to get the treasure in the field. He didn't say, man, props to that guy, here's his name. We have the name of the, of the tax collector in the back of the synagogue, you know, beating his breast, who goes home justified. We don't have his name. But I'll tell you, the one name in all the parables of Jesus that we do have This poor man down in the gutter by the rich man's gate. We know his name. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And the issue here, obviously, is not that we know his name is Lazarus, but that God knows his name. That's the point. That even when all the world had forgotten this man, just walked right on, God knew his name. And he knows your name. The amazing thing is even too, when we look at what his name means, it's awesome. 
<laughs> Lazarus is a rabbinic abbreviation of the Hebrew Eleazar. El, God, Azar, to help. In other words, you would render it something like this. God has helped, or the one God helps. He goes, you know this guy that no one is helping, that it seems like, you know, providence is against, and I'm against, and I've forgotten, and all the world's forgotten. Listen, I know his name. His name is Lazarus. His name means God is going to help this brother. God is here in the mix with this brother. I know his name. I've not forgotten about him. I know your name. I've not forgotten. But you ever feel like, God, you are not here. You are not here. If anyone was feeling that, it would be Lazarus. And yet the point here is God knows your name. He has not lost sight of you. I just read it in Psalm, I think, 56 this last week. He, he, he keeps your tears in a bottle. He knows they're all in his book. He's going to make every wrong right in his time. His eyes are on you. The scripture has said of you, Christian, that your name is written in heaven, Luke 10 and 20, that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, Philippians 4, 3, from, and has been from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. And I love Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Listen to this. God reasons with us and he says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you, or uh, the NET translates it, your name on the palms of my hands. Like I know Your name, I will not forget you. I've got you. I know you're going to feel that way. That's why he's saying this. That's why he's saying this. You're going to feel like I've forgotten you at times. And all the world may indeed forget you. But I'm right there. And help is coming. Hold on. So there is, of course, another side to this reality, and this is where we'll close. Um, Because while we know Lazarus' name, we're not told the rich man's name. And some scribes, when they're copying the manuscripts and things, saw this and thought, well, surely that was an error. We better give this guy a name. I mean, if Lazarus, the poor man, had a name, surely the rich man had a name. So you look at the manuscripts and things, sometimes there's these, these random kind of additions of a name, like Dives or Nineveh or Phineas, they're trying their best here, but they're missing the point. The point is actually in the fact that the poor man has a name and the rich man doesn't. There's meaning in that. You see, one man entrusts his life, entrusts his name, attaches his identity, builds himself upon God. Gives him his security. You be my security. You be my hope. You be my life. You have my name. You keep me. And he will have his name forever. And God does keep him. And his name is in our book that we read on Sundays. And hopefully throughout the week as well. But this other man, this other man attaches his name to, to perishable things, to vain pursuits. He builds his life upon the sand, upon his his palace and his clothes and his dinner table. 
And when death comes for him, he cannot take any of that with him. So his identity goes with it. Just left behind to be forgotten as he moves into eternity. Nameless. No identity. So the question for us then that Jesus has been driving at all along, what are you going to attach your name to? What are you going to build your identity on? Are you going to come up under Jesus, build your, build your life upon him? Let him have your name. Trust him, even when stuff goes rough, even when it gets hard, that he's got you. You're going to see the forgiveness offered to you in Jesus, the eternal life that can be yours freely by grace. See that as more valuable than anything you could lay hold of here so that you're willing to just let it go and get him. And you're releasing that stuff and love for others. Does he have your name? Now, I don't need the extra zeros at the end of my, my net worth or whatever, so I feel better. My identity's good. If I have him, it will be secure. Is that where you're at? Or are you going to attach your name to this stuff? Find it in what you do. Find it in who you know. Find it in what you have. Stuff that's going to perish with use. Stuff that's not going to be there for you in the end. You try to hold it all. Keep it. It'll eventually go. The choice is ours, I pray, by God's grace. We make the right one. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we are secure in Christ. No matter what circumstances we are facing right now, we can know that our God is for us and that he is stronger than them. And there's a freedom in that, God, that as we approach our our stuff and our money and our possessions, we can, even in hard times, release them in love for others because you have our backs. And so, God, I pray that you'd move us outward in that way, even now in this place. Let there be repentance going on in this room. Let there be worship and adoration going on in this room. God, you are worthy and we love you. It's in your name that we um, ask these things. Amen.